welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. If we haven't met already in person, my name is Scott, and I am one of the people who serve here with our team in Inglewood. And these are busy times for us here at Commons. Spring is coming. We will be hanging out on the playground after church before you know it, I promise. And if you haven't brought your skates to church yet, you are going to need to do that pretty quickly here because we're running out of cold days. But also, like I mentioned just a second ago, Lent is about to begin, which we will say lots about in the coming weeks. And we have a ton of other community stuff happening, as always. Child dedications and baptisms are coming up, so look for ways to sign up for those if you are interested. And before you know it, we are going to be talking about getting ready for our Stampede Breakfast here in the neighborhood. Crazy, crazy, crazy. But there are always our regular rhythms of groups and dinners and the steady ways that we move and we grow together along with all of the local partnerships that we work with week by week, month by month. So much goes on and so much is part of our shared life together. It's more than just our liturgy here. So thank you for the ways that you contribute to that. Now, if you didn't know so, Today is a really significant day for us because we are finishing a major project. Back when Commons was just beginning as a community, we made this commitment to work through the entire book of Romans, which is this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to some of the first believers and churches in the first century. And I'm sure that for some of us here, this has felt like one of those group projects that you have in grade school, or worse yet, if you ever had one in an intro university course, where maybe some of you are hoping that somebody else will just do the Romans homework so you can get on with your life. Because let's be honest, if you have been around church, Romans can feel a lot like a massive textbook that you do not understand, but you know that everything is going to be on the test. But if you are newer to church or to our tradition, Romans can feel a little bit like the instructions for an Ikea room setup, where you're looking at all these pieces wondering if any of it actually fits together, which is why we took a slow and a steady approach, friends. This yearly rhythm where we have moved our way through this letter while we grow and we become as a community. And this is not the first time that I have said this, but teaching through Romans has fundamentally changed who I am and it's completely altered the way that I have faith in the world. At least in part because we are in the process of starting and building a community here just like they were in Roman. And like them, we do this work with all of our stories intact, all of our political and our ethnic and our identity differences swirling around us. And when you realize that the church in Rome was effectively an elaborate social experiment, it was this attempt to bring opposites together, rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, and a thousand more differences, I'm sure. When you realize this and use it as a lens to look at all that Paul says, all of a sudden, Romans doesn't feel so complicated or confusing or removed from your life and mine. No, maybe like me, you realize that as we have read Paul's soaring theology, that along the way, you have changed too. At least, I hope you can see that. And if you aren't sure or your memory's fading, that's okay. That's what we're doing today because we're going to take one long last look back over the way that we have come and we're going to mark some signposts and some landmarks that will help guide us for the road ahead. But before we get to that work, let's take a moment now to center ourselves on this work. Join me now.
Loving God. Creating, renewing, comforting force in the world. We ask that you would come near to us in ancient text and in moments of quiet and beauty that we encounter and also in this space that we share now because our hearts are open and we're aware that all we are is known to you right now, gracious God. So we ask, we ask for eyes to see and for ears to hear and hearts to sense the depth of your affection for us in whatever state we are. And for all the things which cry out in us for truth and for justice to be restored. We ask that you'd be our guide in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. Okay, well, if preaching sermons ever becomes an Olympic event, then preaching all of the book of Romans in 30 minutes is going to be the gold medal round, which is what we're going to do today. And it's just another way of saying that we have to get moving, so no jokes anymore. To start, what's going to help us to remember what we've gone through in Romans is to think of Romans as an extensive argument. And the basic gist of it is this. Paul had discovered the story of Jesus. And he saw that story as a new revelation of God against everything that had gone wrong in the world. That's chapters 1 to 4, roughly. In chapters 5 to 8, Paul presents Jesus as this model for a new way of being human that was going to keep the story moving along. A story that's actually the fulfillment of ancient promises from God to all people, which is the focus of chapters 9 to 11 in the letter. And then, as we've discussed these last few weeks, the last chapters of the letter see Paul pleading with the community. And Paul says effectively this. He says, look at what God has done. Can you please cooperate with it? And can you get along with each other? Which kind of makes being an apostle sound an awful lot like keeping your kids from killing each other. But anyways, with this outline, we're going to jump in. Paul, of course, begins this letter with an introduction. He says, I am an apostle. I've been given this work to carry the gospel of God. And a gospel, or literally, message of good news. Paul saw this gospel being about God promising long ago two prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then ultimately, it was the news that Jesus Christ was the new Lord of the world. And as we mentioned, every year in this series, Paul's encounter with Jesus, which you can read about for yourself in Acts chapter 9, there's this bright light from heaven and a voice that also comes to him. He had convinced, or he had been convinced in this encounter of who Jesus was, this gospel, that it had the power to save anybody who believed it. Jews, Gentiles, everyone. Which is why he writes, for in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that's by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And to be clear, the faith he's talking about here in the first chapter of Romans is actually the faithfulness of God. See, 
Paul sees Jesus as revealing God's righteousness, as revealing God's truest and best self, you might say. And in this righteousness, we see how God has been faithful from first to last through all history, all the way back through the story of the Jewish scriptures. And to prove his point, Paul quotes the rarely referenced Hebrew prophet Habakkuk. For just as it is written, he says, the righteous will live by faith. And what's interesting here is that, as we have seen so many times in this letter, Paul gets really creative with the way that he's using the Jewish Bible. See, because the ancient prophet was writing to comfort the ancient Hebrew people who were going through difficulty. This is what Habakkuk said, see, the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And that his faithfulness there, scholars think that refers to God's faithfulness. And therefore, it's an encouragement to the oppressed Hebrew people many centuries before Jesus that they are going to make it because God will come through for them. Now, the NIV that I've read to you here, it mirrors the Greek text that we think Paul would have used as he wrote, a text that actually puts the words of this ancient prophet Habakkuk in God's voice, where it would read something like this, don't despair. The righteous person will live by my faithfulness to them. And the crazy bit is that Paul, when he's translating this ancient text and putting it in his letter, he doesn't include the pronouns from the translation in the lower Romans passage, which is kind of interesting. It's like he's editing the Bible as he's putting it in his letter. But whether he's doing this because he's quoting from memory and he didn't quite get it right, or he assumes that everybody knows that he's talking about God's great faithfulness here, What's important is that Paul sees the gospel story of Jesus revealing God's great goodness. This faithful presence that's found at the center of an ancient story and also now working its way into the middle of Paul's experience in the world, an experience that ultimately traces its way to you and to me, which is an important place to read Paul's letter from, yes, but it's also in a fundamental view for our own journey of faith, our own searching, our own questioning in the world, where we see God's action as the source of all the good that's kept you. And this is such an important lens for how to interpret what Paul says next, because in verse 18, he drops this. He says, oh, the righteousness of God has been revealed and the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and wickedness of people, which sounds super heavy. But remember this, Paul just said that in Jesus, the righteousness of God that saves all has been revealed. And then in a parallel phrase, he's saying that in Jesus, the wrath of God that saves all is revealed. And that might seem contradictory, to be quite honest, but if we look a little closer, we find something that we so often miss when we think of what Romans is all about, especially if we have been around Christian communities and traditions that emphasize images of God as angry and wrathful and so committed to delivering the harsh consequences of justice. Because look, It's there in our English Bibles. Paul is not saying that Jesus reveals God's wrath that's aimed at any of us. No, Paul's saying that God's wrath is revealed against the things that harm us. The things that carry us far from grace, the damage done to all of creation, the things that are done that spread injustice in the whole world. 
And let's be clear, Paul does get pretty prescriptive at times. And part of what can help us as he takes on that tone is to recognize that while he's naming how Jesus reveals God's faithfulness to save all, and God's faithfulness to resist all that's wrong in the world, Paul was also so honest with us about how we have this tendency to hold on to the things that hurt us. We're selfish. We're self-centered. We hoard for ourselves and we're violent against others. That is all more true than we would like to admit sometimes. But what Paul hopes is that here at the beginning of the letter that you'll start from a place of knowing that God is always and faithfully acting in the world. And that those actions are never in anger toward you. That God's wrath is reserved out of love for the thing that controls you. The thing that weighs you down or hurts you even when that's something that maybe you struggle to let go of. And ultimately he hopes that we will see that God is telling a story that starts with love instead of anger, which makes a big difference when you think about it. Now, that makes all the difference because for Paul, the story of Jesus reveals to us who we really are. And to explain this in this letter, Paul begins with what might sound like a familiar, albeit negative, picture of the world. In chapter 5, Paul writes this. He says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And yes, it sounds like that it's not a complete thought. We're going to come back to it in a second. Here, as Paul's making this reference, he's pointing back to the Jewish tradition and story. The story of the first man and the first woman disobeying God's commands. And if you look carefully at the language here, Paul is saying something like this. He's saying, see, sin has been part of the human story since the very beginning, and it persists because we all participate in it. We all experience death that comes to us because of the mistakes we make, which is how Paul used the Hebrew story to explain why Jesus matters. And he did this, or as he did this, he admitted that in his experience, like yours and mine, this experience was marked by human mistakes and the death and the destruction that those mistakes brought with them. Now, what's interesting is that scholars point out that Paul clearly saw death as dominating the human experience, but not because of one primeval act that passes sin and death to us in our genetics, which is what some early theologians like St. Augustine thought happened. No, Paul saw it happening because of our choices. Where you and I, like Adam, we choose greed and we abuse and we choose violence that take us far from God's goodness and best intentions. And that means if we read Paul properly, Adam certainly was the original screw-up in that he was the first of many. And our lives mirror Adam's because of our capacity to choose which is a story that I imagine rings true for most of us here this morning. We, we get it. There's all kinds of evil around. I mean, for example, we have the fracturing of indigenous and settler peoples happening in our own nation. We have all of the little ways that we dehumanize people each and every day. There's the self-centeredness that pulls all of us from God's image at their core. But it's more than just these big issues in the world, because I think we know that there's darkness in us, too. 
There's our sickness and our loneliness and our pursuit of what we want despite the cost and in the wake of broken relationships and detours and wounded hearts, Paul seems to get it right. Sin has entered the world and in it, death has come to us all because we all keep sinning, Paul says. The best part though is that not where Paul stops in Romans. See, he says, if that story is true, that our shared history can look so much like the story of one man named Adam, what happens when we look at someone else, at someone better? And he puts it this way, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus. And in wrestling with the story of Jesus, Paul finds a better story about us all. A story far more original than Adam's first mistake and all of our failures since, where we realize that the goodness of God in us and the way that we are made in God's image, that this can never be altered by our mistakes. Oh, we lose sight of it and we neglect it. And we forget that we are more than the sum of our failures, which is why Paul says, look at Jesus. And maybe, maybe you are not as hard on yourself as I am on myself, but I know that my habits of self-criticism, self-criticism, they drown out this better story at times. Where I measure every time I'm harsh with those I love, or every time I brush off this person in need, or I do too much of that and not enough of this, and I start to believe I'm the sum total of all the compromise and the character flaws, and I forget that I'm made in God's likeness before I even take a breath. And it's in those moments where our tendencies and what others do to us, leaving us painfully aware of what death or how close death is to us, that's when we need Paul's words just like they must have needed them in Rome. These words that call us to remember a better story. How God's self became like us in Jesus to show us how loved we are and how good we could be and ultimately how sin and death don't have the final word. So I know we're going fast here, but to review... Paul's saying this, he says, God is the primary actor in history with righteousness and wrath to faithfully save all. And then he argues the clearest way to see God as the actor in history is to look at the story of Jesus, which changes all of the stories that we tell about ourselves and to ourselves. And this would have all sounded great. But remember, Paul is writing to a community wrestling with major questions. You have all these early Jewish believers who were waiting and asking. They said, wait, wait, wait a second. Didn't our scriptures teach us that God chose us? That we're the ones that the story of Jesus is meant for and it belongs to? And then you have all these early Gentile believers who are observing, yeah, but some of us are believing that story. And some of you guys rejected Jesus. It seems like actually God's choosing us. And Paul's response is yes. He just sort of, nod, he smiles and nods. And he says yes to both camps. Because part of Paul's overarching argument, and we come to it especially in chapters 9 to 11, is that this story of God choosing people in the world, 
This story has been going for a long time. At the beginning of chapter 9, Paul claims that it goes all the way back to the story of Abraham having two wives and two sons. Some of you may know this story. One of those sons, his name is Isaac, and he carried the Jewish story forward. One of those sons is named Ishmael, who showed that grace could reach beyond the lines of family and ethnicity. Look, Paul's pleading, the story of our people was never really about bloodlines. It was never really about how to keep the rules so we stay together. It was always about how God chose us, the Jews, to be God's people. And when God chose us, God didn't do this out of hate and spite for all the other people. God faithfully chose us so that we could show others God's goodness. A choice that became brilliantly clear in the person of Jesus. Now, the problem is that in Rome, it appears that more Gentiles than Jews were responding to the story. That's part of why Paul has to write this letter. And in Romans 9, 14, Paul anticipates the person in the community who might say, well, hold on a second. If, if God seems to be choosing some people over others, isn't that a little unfair? Like, what are God's criteria? And Paul disagrees, and he says, no, 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 no. This is who God's been all along. It goes back a long ways. And he says that God's choosing should comfort all of us because salvation does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. This is what he says in 9.16. But then he also anticipates the person in the community who might say, well, wait, wait, wait. If God chooses some people in the world and not others, how can God blame us? How can hold us accountable for the wrong we do if we're not in that selective group? It sounds like God's just an arbitrary judge. And Paul really encourages us in the book of Romans to not judge God's character by this kind of characterization. And then he gets to the heart of it. He asks in his friends in Rome to... Think of a couple things. First, he says, what if? What if all through history, God has been choosing to be extremely patient with some people, holding out for those who are resisting God's desire to recover all, those who are working against what's best for them, those who are seemingly destined for those who are for their own destruction? And then secondly, he asked them this, what if God chose this to make the riches of God's glory known to the objects of divine mercy who were prepared in advance for glory, even us? Those of us who were called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. What if? And with these questions, Paul completes a picture he's been painting. He has tried tried so hard to get these Jewish siblings of his to realize that what made their story what it was was not their superior morals or their strict adherence to religious rules. No, it was God's choice of them. And then he's tried to make it so clear to his Gentile friends that in Jesus, God's choice to bless all people, this has actually been realized. It does include you, he says to them. And to support these claims, he goes back to the Hebrew Bible again, like you know he does. And he pulls two citations from this ancient prophet Hosea, where God says this, I'm going to call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who isn't my loved one. And then he takes another quote. He says, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, right there, they will be called the children 
of the living God. And to be quite honest, this is one of my favorite pieces of how to know God in the world today. This quote that Paul wrenches from the Hebrew prophet. Because for Paul, this is the clincher. These verses are kind of like ancient roots of God's choice to pursue all and gather all and include all. And they've been hidden under the surface of an ancient story all along, but now they have burst out into view through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, bringing us the very best news. News that would have led Paul's friends to reevaluate if their faith was all about boundaries. If it was actually important to argue about who's in and who's out, who God chooses and who God doesn't. And this is news that also questions you and I. Like, does our picture of faith and community look like a room that's getting tighter and a road that's getting more narrow the further you get down it? Gently asking us if our devotion is defined by trying to be perfect even when we don't and even when we most certainly cannot. Because for Paul, faith is the place we come to when we realize that God has been patient. And for just a moment there, we trust that God might actually choose anyone and everyone, maybe even us. And where instead of tightness and narrowness and a life defined by figuring out how not to miss out, we wake up to how faith is a step into the wide openness of God. This vast expanse that is always, always, always making more room and renewing all of the empty and the broken spaces that we so often choose to live in. And you know what? I think Paul's greatest insight might have been that nobody comes to see how amazing this truth is, that he was just captivated by. Nobody comes to see this truth on their own. Paul looked at all of our differences and all of the differences in that Roman church and he seems to have been saying to them, wait a minute, can't you guys see it? You guys are so different and you have this incredible opportunity to embody this ancient story, this kind of grace that's with and for each of you. Hard though it must have been for them. And this is why he spends so much time. In fact, we've spent four weeks, the last four weeks, working through the last few sections of this letter because Paul is trying, trying to get these people to get along together. And this is why he writes famously at the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, dear siblings, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship. What's interesting is that commentators universally point to the fact that Paul, after 11 chapters of arguing, is shifting here. It's in that therefore at the beginning of chapter 12. And in effect, Paul's saying this, if God's mercy, hold on a second, if God's mercy is as good as I've said it is, If the work of God in Jesus is more pervasive and transformative than all our previous religious experience could ever comprehend, if that's true, then offer your bodies as a sacrifice. This is what God longs for, after all, a new kind of community, siblings and partners in this new venture. Now, it's really important to understand why Paul uses language of sacrifice here. 
partly because we know that ritual practice is so important for group identity. It was in the ancient world, it is today. In that the things that we do together as human beings, repeatedly and with intention, these shape who we are and become. And this is what Paul was getting at. Because rituals of sacrifice were common in the ancient world. For the Jewish people, the temple of Jerusalem was still standing and it hosted forms of worship based on sacrifice. The catch was, though, is that most of these people who were living in Rome, they would have never seen the temple in Jerusalem. Their frame of reference for this kind of worship would have just been the text of Judaism and the commands to practice the law. And they, along with the Gentile Christians in the church, would have been far more familiar with the local, frequent civic festivals for Roman leaders and deities in which animal sacrifices would have been offered regularly. So, Paul's Roman friends would have had this picture in their minds of these ritual practices as this letter was read to them. But remember, Paul has spent time in Romans trying to convince them that these exclusive Jewish practices and rituals of sacrifice, they weren't necessary to be part of God's family anymore. And he has declared Jesus as Lord as he's explained this to the Roman church, which was an open challenge to the Roman assertion that Caesar was Lord. Which means this, that in Romans 12, Paul is taking the boundaries off of certain accepted group practices and he is transposing them into everyday life. Where worship transforms from the language of ritual sacrifice into the demanding work of human relationships in the world. In spite of your differences, live your lives as ritual, he says, and use your bodies to do that worship. Be devoted to each other in love. Be joyful, patient, faithful. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Live in harmony with each other. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, he says. Which opened up all kinds of possibilities in Rome. And maybe for us too. Where practices of welcome become what's holy about us. Especially when we offer them to those who are so different. I mean, think of it. When you smile at someone as you enter this space. Or you make, uh, you make eye contact in a public space out in our city. When you open your home and your table. Or you open your schedule for a new connection or friendship. Each simple action like this, a way in which your body becomes a prayer that helps others. And loves others and shelters others. Because... We need to be clear here, Paul might have liked complex ideas and he was certainly intrigued by ancient vocabulary and enamored by a story as old as time, but that is not what makes him captivating. That's not why you should take Romans with you as you go today. No, what makes Paul's writing worth reading is its connection to his personal story, which is a test case for the greatest claims of our faith, that love wins, and that you can change, and that community is always worth building. 
Because if a religious fanatic and murderer so opposed to who Jesus was could over time become an, uns- an outspoken champion for how grace is meant for everyone. And if a man who sounds so harsh and so sure of how others should live their lives sometimes, he could write so profoundly of how nothing, time past or time present, could separate us from God's love. If someone who was so opposed at one point in their journey to those who were not like him. If that person could ultimately give his life so that those who felt they might never belong could find their way home, then maybe there's something here. Maybe. A story about God faithfully working to save you. A story about you that's better than one you could imagine. A story about us as big and as expansive to include absolutely everyone. And now in the words of Paul from Romans 15, may our dependably steady and warmly personal God develop maturity in you so that you can get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with all of us. Because then we will be a choir, our very lives singing in harmony this stunning anthem to God our Father of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Loving God, these kinds of flyovers over big ideas. At least for me, I, if I'm honest, I, it, it feels so expansive. And that's why I think it's so helpful that the text that we have is rooted in Paul's life. And he doesn't go very far, even as he writes these complex things, he doesn't go very far without rooting this amazing story in our practices as people in the world. And I'm thankful for that today. I'm grateful for this journey we've been on. And I ask that you would help us to be aware of your faithful action in the world and that you would teach us in the days to come to trust it in new ways. That you teach us to trust this narrative about us that's more original than that of our failure that we would begin to trust in the areas where we feel broken today, perhaps, the ways we feel overwhelmed, the ways that we feel we're somehow a lesser version of ourselves than we could be. We're so thankful for a story of redemption. And we see it in Paul's life, and we're grateful for it. How ultimately he came to realize that you choose all. You choose even us which is this powerful image of a life made new then and a life made different. And as we live together in that story, we leave behind us a wake of hope. May this be true of us today and in the days to come, I ask in the name of Christ. Amen.